Today's scripture reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the witness of two or three established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is the reading of God's word. It's good to see everybody here today. Uh, Hopefully we've had a good week. Um, We've been looking here in the whole chapter of 18 in the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, what we've been arguing is that this whole chapter, not just the verses that was just read by Hannah, but this whole chapter is talking about how we follow Um, how we grow in Jesus Christ. And all along, we've been saying that growing in Christ, growing our faith, following Jesus Christ, it doesn't just happen individually. uh, It also happens, in fact, needs to happen communally. That it's not just the role of an individual to be responsible for one's own growth. It's also the church, the whole church. And not just pastors, and not just the elders, and, and, and not just the leaders, But every member of the church uh, is contributing to the growth of every individual. And as we get deeper here into chapter 18, uh, what we find is things get a little bit more specific. Things get a little bit more concrete and, in fact, more difficult, more difficult. We're coming here. See, initially when I started this series, I really wanted to get to verses 15 and 20. But as I looked at it, I was like, well, wait a minute. This is hard. Let's, Let's back up a little bit and see what context this is all about. Okay, but this is an important passage. Um, I don't know if you've ever read or thought about this passage. Uh, The only part of our passage that I've ever heard quoted that you might be familiar with is in verse 20. You know, the part about where two or three are gathered together in my name and there God will be in the midst. And the only thing that meant to you probably was that when a couple people showed up to a prayer meeting, you know God showed up too, right? And that's not necessarily a wrong idea. It's just that I don't think that's what this verse here in the context of our passage means, okay? And so let me be very honest with you. As I study this passage, now don't, don't, don't get nervous, I have problems with it. Uh, I, I'm frustrated by it. And you know, as a pastor, there isn't that much that uh, it's in the Bible that I have a problem with. Uh, there are questions maybe that I have, there may be even some doubts, but in this particular passage, in verses 15 to 20, I have a problem with it. Um, I can't help have a problem with it. And my problem is this. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. And let me qualify that. What I'm saying, when I say I don't believe it, it's not that I don't believe that Jesus said this. Or that this here, verses 15 to 20, isn't really part of God's word. Or that somehow these verses are theologically off or, you know, a little skewed. That's not what I'm saying when I say I don't believe it. The problem for me in these verses, as Jesus tells Christians and and, or like disciples, 
how he or she is to deal with another disciple, another Christian in the church who has sinned against them, I don't believe what Jesus says is going to work. I mean, I'm just being honest. Knowing what I know now, if I was there when Jesus was speaking these words, I would have raised my hand and I would have asked, Jesus, wait, wait, are you sure about this? Because I don't know. I mean, call me cynical. I am kind of cynical, but I don't believe it. And the reason that I don't believe this is going to work is not because of you, Jesus. It's because of us. It's because of the church. I don't believe this is going to work because you're not going to do it. You're not going to do this. In fact, most of my life up until now as a pastor, I have never experienced a church, never been a part of a church, that did what Jesus says to do in verses 15 to 20. No church that I've ever personally been in has done this. People confronting other people about their sin, people taking two or three witnesses to, to talk to them. I don't know any church that did this. And even if they tried to do this, it usually, in my experience, didn't really turn out that great. And it could just be me, but that's, that's what I see. So you might be asking the question then, why, why even preach on it then? I mean, I've never preached on this passage, so why even do it? Why not just pass this part and go to the next part, which is actually about forgiveness? And the reason is, it's because it's here. It's in the Bible. And I still believe it's God's word. And I can't pretend that it doesn't exist or that it's irrelevant. I can't just pick and choose what I like and what I don't like. But here also, we're talking about discipleship and the church. And this is one, if not the only passage, where Jesus instructs the church about the whole thing. In fact, in this passage, the word church actually shows up in Matthew 18. This is here in this passage, Jesus' concern for the church, for us, how the church, how us, how we deal with each other, especially with regards to a sin or an offense. And here's how I'm going to do this, okay? I'm going to do a little different. I'm going to, we're going to look at this first part today, and then next week we'll look at the second part in these verses. But what I want to do is this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to say, this is what I think Jesus is saying. And then I'm going to say, this is why it doesn't work, okay? I'm going to say, this is what I think Jesus is telling us to do, and I'm going to say, this is why I don't think it works. So let's, let's try to think of this. Let me give you some perspective or context if you're joining us here for the first time. In chapter 18, it's all about the metaphors. It's all about the metaphors, right? In verses 1 to 6, he calls disciples little ones. They're children. How we are to treat those and one another as weak in faith. We need to look out for each other, making sure that we're not the reason that other Christians around us are stumbling in their faith and that we're not throwing up obstacles in front of the other believers uh, that might, you know, who want to grow in grace. In other words, what we said in verses 1 to 6 is that it's just not good enough to think about what's good for you what's best for you, but it's also because now you're part of the family because we're all children, the family of Jesus Christ, now you've got to think about the needs of the whole family, not just your individual needs. And then the metaphor changes. He said, as, he said in verse 6, you know, we're like little children, but then he moves to sheep. This is what we talked about last week, verses 12 to 14. He speaks of us now as sheep, and the picture was that God is like this father who is like a shepherd. 
And Jesus Christ is the good shepherd who doesn't just care for us, but he goes after each and every one of us who wanders from him, who wanders. And what we said there last week was that the Father loves every, each and every one of his members in the kingdom. So he values and cares for them, and he goes after them. And so Lord Jesus says basically last week is that that's the heart of your Father, so be like your Father. Okay? But now we come to this passage, and again the metaphor changes. We're little children, and then it says we're sheep. But in verse 15, look at what Jesus says. If your brother sins against you. So the disciples aren't just little ones. Uh, Christians aren't just like sheep. Here, Jesus says now they are brothers, and we can be inclusive with that, sisters. Not just brothers and sisters, but also brothers and sisters who have offended one another. Now think about this, okay? It's one thing to love little children. It's another thing to love, you know, wandering sheep. But to love a brother or a sister who has offended you, sinned against you. The metaphors increase with their difficulty, I think, and this has to be a very difficult thing. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus chooses the term brother because, I'll be honest, that's the last thing I'm thinking about when I feel like I've been offended. I'm not looking at the offender as a brother, as a family member. I'm looking at the offender as an enemy, someone who's out to hurt, and so I think this is a very difficult thing, and that's why, you know, we need to look at it carefully. I'm not going to say too much. Just a couple things about verse 15. We're not going to be able to say everything about this passage, maybe a Q&A later and at some point in the future, but four things to think about, okay? Four things. Here's the first one. You know, um, most of you know I have a brother, and uh, you know, he's also pastoring out there in California, and we, we grew up really close. We're five years apart, but we grew up really close, but... You know, if I think about how I was as an older brother, um, I, I think I was a bully uh, growing up. And we grew up fighting. We grew up wrestling. We grew up, you know, playing kung fu and karate, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. And, and, and that's how I always tend to see him when I see him, even now. But I realize things have changed because one day we were at my parents' place, and uh, his wife, Kathy, who back then was still his girlfriend, was there with us in the living room. I was sitting next to my dad, and my brother comes alongside of me, and it's my natural instinct to just grab his head and put him in a headlock. You know, so I put him in a headlock with my left arm. You know, here's my dad, here's, here's his wife, or his soon-to-be wife, and I'm, and I'm holding him there. You know, and we giggle and laugh about it, but man, something had changed because he got serious. And then I got serious. So I held on really tight. I think I held on to his head for about 10 minutes straight. And my dad's watching us, right? He's struggling really, and I'm struggling really. He's struggling really hard. And my dad's like, you can do it, Will. You can do it. <laughs> you know? And, and the thing is, I didn't even realize, but his girlfriend is sitting right there, and, and she's like, come on, Will. Come on. And, you know, I think, I think the pride, there was a pride issue, and I didn't realize. He's an adult. But I was treating him as like a little kid, and he squeezes his head out. His face is all red, and there's like blotchy all over because, you know, it, just, it was just... It was horrible. And later on, you know, we got into a fight, and we were, I thought we were wrestling, but he's like, friends, don't mess with me. I'm, I'm upset. Don't do it. Don't do it. And I did it. I grabbed his head again, and he went all out on me, and I had no idea how strong he was. 
you know, but he went all out, and it was my natural instinct, and as he was, like, you know, trying to grab my head, I took my right hand, and I smashed it across his cheek. You could, you could hear it like that. We both were stunned. Because I've never punched a person like that, and he's never got punched. And so, you know, we were like, oh, okay, we better stop. You know, in retrospect, uh, I was the bad brother. I, 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 I done wrong to him. I had embarrassed him in front of, you know, his future wife. I, I violently hurt him, uh, and I thought it was all fun and joke, but it was my fault. And, you know, I sinned against my brother. I sinned, right? And I think this is what the, the reality of, of Jesus, here's, this is the four, first point. There is going to be sin in the church. There's going to be offense. There's going to be hurt and wrongs. There's going to be anger. There's going to be hate. There's going to be indifference. That, it's a simple truth, but it's the reality, and we need to remember this. There is going to be sin. We shouldn't come to church and think that there's not going to be anyone hurting any each other because we're a church. And then you get shocked when you hurt someone do something. That's, that's naive. I mean, even in marriage, you're marrying a sinner, and you're a sinner. What do you think is going to happen when you get two sinners to live together for the rest of their lives? More sin. Right? So Jesus knows that when he gathers his people into the church, that we're not going to be a perfect collection of people. We're going to sin against one another. We're going to do wrong against each other. There are going to be times when we need one another and we fail one another in those times of need. There's going to be times of need when we really need someone to hug us or to call us or to help us, and that call never comes. There are going to be times when we need some godly counsel and help, but instead we feel like we got stabbed in the back by someone who shares some information to someone else that really, really embarrasses us. We are going to be disappointed by the choices that some people make. We're going to run into believers, fellow believers, who might hurt us. And it's going to be deeply, deeply hard and disappointing. But I want you to know this from this passage, at least this. I want you to know this. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus told you it was going to happen. Jesus told you it was going to happen. And he told you what to do when it does. The Bible's a realistic book. It's, it's, Jesus is a realist. Not everything, just because you become a Christian, is precious moments. And I know this is hard to think about, especially if you're not a Christian or if you're a new, a new Christian and you, you expect to come into a church where everyone's going to treat each other really like family, but you find it the other case. It, it's sad. It's discouraging. It, it's unfortunate, but it happens. You know what my biggest headache in the church as a pastor is? It's not that the church is small. It's not that sometimes things seem unorganized. My biggest headache isn't the fact that maybe some people or us aren't spiritual enough. It's this. When fellow members hurt other fellow members. It's not only bad, but it's a bad look on the church. And it's a bad look on God before a watching world. And it's, sometimes, it's just nasty. It's nasty. But I think we need to understand the point here is this. What did you expect? 
We're still sinners, and therefore it's my job to deal with it. But the question is, what about you? How do you deal with it? How do you handle that? Especially when you are being offended or sinned against. And so I'm going to tell you what I think Jesus tells us in verse 15 and begin to start to, at least start to tell you what I think Jesus is saying and why he says it and why I think this is hard to do or believe, okay? First, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Here's the first thing Jesus tells us to do. We need to confront those who sin against us with their sin. He's saying we have to be confrontational. And this is hard for many of us because facing conflict is one of the hardest things that we ever do. To go to another person and deal with it, it's, it's not natural for some of us, many of us. It's, it's an unnatural thing. For most of us, maybe, it would be easier just to deny it, just to pretend it didn't happen just to ignore it, not make a big deal of it sometimes. But this is what Jesus is saying. We need to confront those about their sin against us. Go tell them his fault. That's what Jesus seems to be saying. Here's why I don't think it'll work. Because we're, many of us, non-confrontational. We think like this, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to talk to this person again. And I'm boiling inside. You're boiling inside. But what you're going to do is you're going to talk to other people about it. You're never going to address the offender, but you'll address everybody else about what the offender did to you. That's the way I think we normally deal with it. Some of us are non-confrontational. We don't want to deal with them up front. But on the other hand, others of us, I think we're overly confrontational. Overly. Here's what I mean. You know you're going to confront that person, but here's you. You've got an axe to grind, right? You're thinking about what this person said or did to you, and you've got an axe to grind. And so you confront the person, but the way you do it is this. Hey, come here. I want to give you a piece of my mind. And both is not, I think, what Jesus is talking about. Understand this. When Jesus says, go to your brother, he's not saying go to your brother to get your grievances off your chest. Go to your sister so that you can dump on her and get some closure on your anger. That's not what he's saying. Okay? But go to your brother to confront him with your sin. And the second thing he says in our passage, privately. Notice that Jesus urges us when we're sinned against in this manner to go privately to the person who's offended us. Privately. Now, I've already told you why that doesn't work. Okay? Because we like to talk to other people about what's happened. It gets out. You know, in a smaller church, and I'm going to give everybody a warning here, you might think because you share something with someone that's really hard that I'm not going to know. I probably know, okay? Maybe 80%, maybe more, I probably already know. We have a small community. Okay? But part of the reason is this. We don't confront the person directly. What we do is we share it with other people directly, and we do it in such a godly way. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I'm going to go to a community group today. And today, they're going to ask us what to pray about. And I think, you know, can we pray about that sister that just gossiped about me and hurt my feelings? She needs our prayer. 
Oh, yeah, I'd like to share a prayer topic. Yeah, just the other day, that brother, like, he, he just, you know, left me hanging. And, you know, I think he needs our prayer. Right? That's how we do it. We, we share these things with other people. And Jesus here seems to be saying, look, when a Christian, when a fellow brother or sister in your congregation sins against you, go to him privately. Don't announce it to everybody in the church. Don't put it on the prayer chain. Don't get your small group to start praying about it. It's gossip. Now the question is, then why privately? And I'll give you two reasons. I think there's some wisdom here. Whether you know, we do this or not, I think there is some wisdom here. Uh, why privately? Two reasons. First, if you've ever seen how someone reacts when they've committed a, a, a personal offense and then it got revealed publicly, what does that person do? The walls come up. Immediately the person is defensive, denying posture, stonewalling. When the, an offense has been in private and then we publicly expose it, it brings up a person's defenses. Not to think about what they've done, but to think about what you've done. Because you've embarrassed them in front of other people. And I think one of the reasons Jesus said, don't go around sharing it, but go to him first privately, is because he doesn't want you to shame a fellow believer. That's not your job. Even one that sins against you. Why? Because when you do that, the person that really needs to deal with this sin is now focused on just trying to cover it up. Just trying to cover it up. That's what they're focused on now. Everyone knows. Cover it up. Avoid them. Not talk about it. Hide it. Say something wrong. Make excuses. Just cover it. That's what they're going to be focused on. And so Jesus is saying, go to them privately. And by doing this, I think he's asking us to help the offender in every possible way to focus on the real matter, not get caught up in being defensive. Okay? I think that's what he's saying. It makes sense. But I also think that's hard. Here's the thing. He's calling us to confront those who have sinned against us. And here's the point. Not so that you just get something off your chest. Not so that there's resolution. That's not the first case. Conflict resolution is important, but it's not the main point here. Okay? Notice again, if you look at verse 15, he says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private, and if he listens to you, you have won a brother or sister. That is the goal to gain or to win this person to the family of God. You have won a brother or a sister, a child of God, verses 1 through 6, a sheep who was wandering, verses 12 to 14, and God the Father who is still their father and who is still their shepherd and who goes after them. If he listens, you have won your brother, even when you are the one who's offended. Even when the offended person is the Christian, he or she must seek the spiritual interest of the offender. Listen to this carefully, because this is the hard part. The prime concern that Jesus says he wants to have in your heart 
is that your brother or sister not be hindered in their relationship, not with you, but with him, in their spiritual growth, that your brother or your sister in Jesus Christ not become hardened to sin, that your brother or your sister not drift away from him in the light of truth. The main concern here for Jesus and why he says what he does is the spiritual welfare of the offender. Even when you are the offended. I want you to go out to your brother out of concern for what? His spiritual well-being. Think about this. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever considered that when you decided to confront anyone? And this is the reason why I think it doesn't work. Another reason. Who does that? Who thinks like this? I mean, it, it, you know, even in our culture, I don't know that many people who think like this. We're, we're always talking about my rights, my offenses, my privileges, my anger, my frustration, and the wrongs and the injustice against me. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that. Of course, you know, we should voice them and, and vocalize those things. But oftentimes, if that's all we think about, if we confront at all, and that's all we have in mind, then when you confront someone, it's judgment, it's retribution, it's punishment, it's revenge, it's just to get it off my chest. And I think what Jesus is talking about here is different. When he tells you to go to a brother for, or, you know, to confront him about his sin against you, he's not talking about judgment. He's not talking about retribution. He's not talking about punishment, not even revenge. I think he's talking about repentance. This is what the church, what a community of faith ought to think about and do for another. Why? Because you're like children and humbled, so your concern is for others. So you don't stumble, but rather you pursue, because they're like sheep who are wandered, and your father would go after them, and so would you. And so you have a concern for their growth, their discipleship, their, their spiritual growth. So go to him, even when you're offended. Go to her and confront for their purpose, for that reason. Now, here's a question I have. What gives you the ability to be able to love somebody like this, to put aside your concerns, your hurts, your pain, your resentment, your grief, in this particular incident, in this sin against you? What gives you the power to do that? This is not natural. In a thing, I don't think it's going to happen naturally. You get offended, and what do you have to do? Think about the spiritual well-being of the guy who offended you. Who does that? It's not what the average person, I think, does. And it's normally, I don't think, what the world does. I don't even know if it's something I would do. But here's the thing. Jesus did. Jesus did. Humble enough to care about others more than himself. Not to put a stumbling block in front of others. He pursued us and cared for us and draws us closer to him. Even when he was the offended one. Friends, this is called grace. 
This is grace. You can say all you want about the process. I, I don't know. I, I'm still not sure the process here works. I don't know. I don't believe in the process, strictly speaking. But it's this principle. Having a concern, pursuing a brother or sister because of their spiritual being, even when I've been sinned against, countercultural as it might be, it's that principle that Jesus is giving that I can't argue with. Why? Because that is the only reason I'm still here. By his grace, he pursued me. He gave up his rights. He disowned his own life in order to save mine. Even when I sin and continue to offend him. This is what Jesus did. And it's not what the world does out there. And maybe it's not even what most of the people in church do. But this is, I think, what Jesus is calling us to do. Because that's what means it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's what a follower, a disciple of Jesus, who did this for us, we ought to do. It's not about justice. Just justice. It's not just about what's right or wrong. It's also about grace. And I'm going to just end with this. Unless we really understand this principle in a very real and concrete way, unless we grasp that truth for ourselves in our heart of hearts, when we find ourselves in the same position as Jesus was, a position of being hurt, let down, disappointed, sinned against. Unless we understand this principle of grace, you also will not believe in this. And we will never be able to do what Jesus asked. We will struggle to follow him. And that's why we need to pray and ask the church and ask the Lord, to help the church, help you to follow Christ in every way. Let's pray. Father, you, uh, in your word, you, you give us instructions you know, well, oftentimes we like instructions. We just tell us what to do. Give us the list. Help us to just do it. And yet, Lord, when you've given us something like this in verses 15 to 20, we look at it and we say, oh, this, this one's, this one's going to be hard, Lord. We, we find it difficult. Um, and yet, it's what you said we ought to do. And Lord, I'm not sure how practical some things are today, especially in our culture. Uh, I'm not sure what the process ought to be. Lord, I'm sure you had us in mind just as much as you did the people back then. And maybe, Lord, what you've set up for us to do here in these verses more are a general or sweeping guidelines of how we ought to think about things. But, but Lord, let us be clear about the principle that drives the whole thing. Let us be clear about your motivation from the very, very beginning. 
that because of what you have done for us and the way you've done it, that no matter how many times, Lord, uh, you've been hurt or disappointed by your people or let down by your followers, you were crucified for people that you cared about and yet you continue to consider our spiritual welfare. This idea of grace needs to, Lord, permeate deeper into our hearts because, Lord, we assume we already know everything about it, but in practicality, we come really short of what you say real grace looks like. It's hard. It's not what's natural. And so, Lord, we need your strength, your spirit to empower, to strengthen, to encourage us to consider you before we consider others so that we might follow you and do unto others as you've done to us. And so let us consider that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.